AJ, have you ever had to shit so bad that you pee second? Sure. Why not? And that's how you want to start our podcast. The dude is like laughing his ass off. <laughs> that's funnier than the joke. <laughs> Honestly. Oh, shit. Okay. I'm sorry. Oh, dude, are you crying? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm Chris. I'm AJ. And I'm Jonathan. And this is Couchside Chats. In recent studies, psilocybin, the active ingredient in psychedelic mushrooms, has shown significant promise as a treatment for substance abuse, including alcohol, harder drugs, and nicotine. So Dr. Michael Bogenschutz at NYU's Grossman School of Medicine notes that psilocybin-assisted therapy can potentially bring about profound changes in behavior for people struggling with addiction. And in that one article, it kind of recall the experience of a- Amy Jamison, who quit smoking following a single high dose of psilocybin session, lends anecdotal support to the research. And earlier studies have even suggested that psilocybin may have an 80% success rate in helping smokers quit, a rate considerably higher than that of conventional anti-smoking medications. However, uh, experts caution that the drug should be used under medical supervision due to potential side effects and questions remain about its long-term effectiveness and accessibility in lower income communities. So what are, what are you guys thoughts on psilocybin as a way, as a treatment for substance use? So there has been, uh, there's been stuff that's circulated on the effects of, uh, psychoactive hallucinogenic drugs um, and how they've altered people's consciousness and thought processes um, in a very profound way. Stuff like that's been circulating for decades, right? Um, Ever since really like the 60s where LSD became really popular, right? People were taking it not necessarily for their mental health, but they were tripping and having these alters of consciousness and everything else. And so you know, the, using it and doing the microdosing as a form of mental health treatment—that's a relatively new thing. I think it's—I think it's really interesting that doctors are taking what has historically been Schedule One controlled substances and um, giving it to people in small doses and getting such amazing results. I think that says a lot about the government jumping the gun when they made these drugs illegal in the first place. That's that's my my opinion, right? Because the Controlled Substances Act in the 1970s is really what banned a lot of these drugs and made them made them illegal because they don't have any accepted medical use. But what we're finding out now is that they have um, quite a bit. That you talked about that, Amy. So Miss Jameson was a 50 year old smoker. Um, and she couldn't smoke or she couldn't quit smoking, uh, for several years, even though she tried. And so they give her how many, let's see, how many was it? They gave her a th- three talk therapy sessions for, uh, and they gave her a 30 milligram dose of psilocybin for each one. They had two therapists in the room for five hours. So we're talking about a total 
of 15 hours of hallucinogenic therapy. And when she came out of the last one, she said, I understand why I smoke. I don't have to do it anymore. And she has not smoked for years. You know, they're also talking about how they're doing the same thing. And I've done some research on this as well um, with ketamine treatment, right? Ketamine is is another psychoactive hallucinogenic drug. um, And they're getting similar results for people with treatment resistant depression, right? They're doing the six to eight sessions with the ketamine and they're coming out the other side of it and no longer meeting a lot of the symptoms and criteria for major depressive disorder. So there is something to be said about it, I think. The article really brought something up that I think is important to talk about, and I want your guys' opinion on this. So the five-hour duration of each experience, right? 30 milligrams, the article even said, 30 milligrams of psilocybin is a relatively higher higher dose. 30 milligrams of psilocybin for three five-hour sessions, that's probably the minimum that they could do, doesn't make it very cost-effective in a healthcare setting. So the people that are probably going to benefit from this the most are lower income, lower socioeconomic status communities, because they're the ones that are disproportionately um, affected by drug and alcohol addiction and nicotine addiction and, and all some of these disorders we're talking about. But I mean, 15 hours um, of two therapists, like that's not, that's not realistic. You know what I mean? Yeah. What do we charge an hour? And we're between 90 and $140. Well, it depends. Right? I mean, counselors, yeah, it can be more. I mean, we know a counselor that charged 250 and uh, increasing to $300 an hour. So. And also, if this becomes kind of like a niche kind of thing where it's very uncommon, they can charge on the higher end. So if That's let's say true. they both charge 180 right? Uh, you're paying 360 bucks an hour for 15 hours. So, so the, the state funded and the, the low income treatment centers very obviously are not going to be able to implement a treatment like this. Not to say that other populations of people won't benefit from this, but the people that need it most are the lower income, lower socioeconomic status type people. Um, because those are the ones that struggle with addiction the most to begin with. And we're talking about using it as an addictive treatment or as an as an addiction treatment. Well, I will be honest with y'all is that I don't believe in psilocybin approach to basically anything. Uh, well, Why mainly because my approach is so grounded in mindfulness is so it's focused on the present moments and engaging anything that take us away from that uh, present moment, because there's more to uh, just dealing with uncomfortable feelings. A big part of my approach to counseling is knowing who you want to be as a person and and who you want to be as a person and what gives you meaning. Uh, and that requires one to be very grounded in the present moment to focus on their, on their actions or their behaviors in the present moment. And when we engage in things that take us away, a lot of time, it takes us away from the values of who we are as a person. In addition to that, let's talk about more scientific and research methodologies. So uh, if you look at the hierarchy of um, level of scientific evidence, anecdotal claims is the weakest claim. And the study that they quoted was, I think it was involved only, what, 30 something people? 
it's a very, very small study. Like 30, I can't remember exact number, but around that range, under 100 people. It's a very, very small study. Uh, so I want to quote this systematic review. So systematic review when it comes to uh, the hierarchy of evidence. Systematic review is the top. It's the most important. It analyzes a bunch of studies. Uh, it brings in multiple studies, and they involve potentially a meta-analysis or multiple meta-analysis to kind of dissect each of these studies and how they uh, combine together. So this systematic review indicated that significant short and long-term reduction of depressive symptoms, although it's not substance use, but I, I want to bring this up to pinpoint something very crucial, um, is that in the meta-analysis, the symptom reduction was significantly indicated in three time points out of four. So including the one day, one week, and three to five weeks, uh, with the exceptions of six to eight weeks. So systematic this systematic review is concluding is that for long-term, psilocybin is a questionable approach. And obviously this is just depressive symptoms. We need to test it on uh, the specific populations of substance use. And another thing that we have to also factor in, like Jonathan said, is uh, financial. When it comes to especially what we have been talking about, with the California situations, with all the states, the issues, we've tried to find the most cost-effective approach. And obviously, this is not the most cost-effective approach. I agree with the with with your argument on the the cost effectiveness and is it you know is it even a realistic treatment due to cost effectiveness? But I vehemently disagree with the uh, your your opinion that that these symptoms and things like that can't be treated by psychoactive substances. Um, because I mean, when you really look at it, right. Addiction is a, is a, it's a brain disease. Um, at, at least that's what a lot of people think. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a chemical dysfunction, um, after a certain point, right. Because the drugs get in there and they change the way the brain functions. Um, you know, it, it uh, alters the level of dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, all that stuff. And so the psilocybin going in and or even the ketamine or, or whatever, right, going in and um, kind of doing a hard reset to some degree, even if it doesn't have a lot of long term effectiveness. Again, I think it's still an early it's an early science. It doesn't have a lot of research or data to back up its its efficacy at this point. Um, and they definitely probably need some tweaking and some work. Um, but I, I do believe in essentially medication assisted treatment, right? Where, um, you have a lot of people that have these extreme mental health problems, um, that are going to have a really hard time, at least initially dealing with trying to get this idea of mindfulness and focusing on the acceptance of the uncomfortable. A lot of people just aren't in that headspace, whether it's because they won't allow themselves to be, whether it's because it's a chemical issue in the brain. So I do believe that there is a made, there is a place for these types of substances to be used in order to kind of push people along, so to speak. Right. I, I do agree. It should be an option for sure. For sure. Uh, Jonathan, do you mind not punching Chris? 
elbowing Chris. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do agree that uh, it is should be an options for for people and an option approach. But the thing about when something's incoming, and I mean, let's talk about our field. You know, the what the longest time was grief based. Now it's trauma based. Everything has to slap a trauma on it. It goes in in phase and becomes. People start promoting. Oh, this is a new thing. This is a new thing. This is a new thing. And it shouldn't be the first approach for people. And let's talk about change in brain structure. Uh, and this, there's multiple systematic review that show how mindfulness actually can indeed change brain functioning. So the most important is the have shown an increase in gray matter density in the hippocampus, an area of, uh, of the brain associated with memory and learning, as well as emotional regulation. That's where it's key here is a lot of people are struggling with uncomfortable feelings has to do with emotional regulation. Uh, and then the decreased in amygdala activity. So the amygdala is the area of brain involved in processing emotions like fear and anxiety. Mindfulness practice has been associated with reduced activity in the amygdala. Uh, and then changes in the posterior cingulate cortex, which in, uh, involve in mind wandering and self-referential uh, thoughts. So here's so, he, 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 I hate so to interject he, here, but I think you guys are you're quite hitting me, Jonathan. Oh my god! <laughs> no, but uh, I hate to interject, but what if you treated it a little bit differently? So currently, we have plenty of therapies where you take medication, but you're still going to talk therapy, right? So you have these things that reduce your symptoms so that you have the capability to sit there and actually be able to process. Like, you have antipsychotics, you have antidepressants, you have SSRIs, SNRIs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so they lower your symptoms so that you can sit there and learn to be mindful. And then you slowly start lowering the dosage, learn to be mindful with less of the medication, to the point where you learn how to be mindful. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, learn to be mindful and deal with your problems to the point where you no longer need the medication. Because when the, they give out medication, like, are they really giving it out? Where it's just, take this, and then I'll see you whenever you need more. Like, that's not... We're not giving out antibacterial, you know, antivirals. We're giving out things that only reduce symptoms that don't... They don't root out the cause of it. So to the credit of, you know, trying out these new substances, you know, ketamine, uh, psilocybin, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you could, in theory, treat it almost the same way if they're doing it short term, like you said, right? Like it's doing great up until like the fifth week. Well, you don't need it for five weeks. We're not given this for someone to be on top of, right? So here's the issues, though is that psilocybin, what it does does for a person is a lot of time it triggers what I uh, experience, they call it ego dissolution. So ego dissolution is the uh, disintegration of boundaries between oneself and the world. So that's uh, the trip, basically. And the trip, that aspect is direct oppositions of what mindfulness is about. And again, as you can see, I'm very biased towards mindfulness. 
So, and so here's 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 my problem with that, AJ, is that there there is definitely we're going to talk about this too because we voted on this article as well to talk about here in a little bit. Um, but the idea of being black and white when it comes to treatment is uh, can be very counterproductive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, different people require different things. If I treated all of my clients with um, the uh, mindfulness and the acceptance and commitment therapy that you use, I would get results with some and others would completely twist off and not do well with it. Right. So the, the reality of it is, is that we have to look at the individual and what they need. You're right. For a lot of people, they may not need something like this, but like Chris was saying, the symptom reduction um, sometimes is non-negotiable to even get somebody to, to be comfortable enough to be in a room with a therapist, much less talk about their problems. And so I, I, I feel like that, Not I'm not saying that you're wrong. I, I don't mean it like that. I just feel like that this black and white approach that I'm going to use mindfulness and acceptance and commitment therapy for every single person that I see um, is in the long run is a disservice. Right. Well, that's not what I'm trying to go for here. I'm trying to say the point I'm trying to come across is, is that there are a lot better approach to that should be the first line of approach. Because I don't know about y'all, but ketamine, not the same as, you know, psilocybin, but ketamine has been popping. They're everywhere. The advertising, they are everywhere. Uh, But if you look at accepting commitment therapy, the reason why I love it so much is that it has six different uh, model that literally is in the part of it is promoting uh, flexibility. So each different models can be adapted. And when those each models are come from different many approach that combine to become accepting commitment therapy. So to your credit, though, I will give you that this is very uh, all the rage kind of thing like it's the new it's the new thing it's like when emdr came out right oh man i gotta go do that uh what, what but, are you and what what were chris and jonathan aren't, aren't y'all planning to <laughs> take emdr yeah we are that, that's why i'm kind of laughing about this <laughs> however uh so maps uh the multidisciplinary uh, association for psychedelic studies actually offers mda or sorry mdma assisted therapy uh they also do ketamine psilocybin cannabis and they're not the only ones ktc uh they were also doing some like um ketamine psychedelic psychotherapy trainings and so there's people who are offering these you can get you can get some hours for this like these things are already out there this isn't like uh in a trial phase like people can go and get trained and use this and so we're already to an extent. And on top of that, if there is scientific backing where there is shown that, hey, there's there's some good to this, we should try our best to put away some of our um, our biases there, AJ, and follow the science. At least that's my opinion. Well, I'm quoting the science and it's the systematic review. But, but here's the problem, though. Like, what makes a difference? Because if we focus on the short-term effectiveness, what's the difference between them doing this or drink alcohol as a way to address these symptoms? 
There's a What's major the difference. difference. There's a major difference because, be, well, go ahead, Chris. Okay. Uh, if we, if it were long-term, right? Mm-hmm. Let, let's pretend it had really just good long-term uh, kind of fixing problem. Would it not tempt people into an addiction of the substance that you're using to help? Mm-hmm. That's where I find that the short term is actually beneficial. Well, uh, so mm. there, there's a there's a major difference here because uh, all of these drugs, the mechanism of action and how they how they work and affect the brain um, is different, right? The psilocybin and the ketamine and the methyl dioxymethamphetamine and uh, I mean MDMA is a drug of abuse. Ketamine and psilocybin, LSD are all drugs of abuse, but they all work on and alcohol is a drug of abuse, but they all work on the brain in a very, very different way. Um, well, the hallucinogens work a little bit more similarly, but the alcohol works way differently. And so there, there is a, um, the, the logic there, I, I feel like, is a little flawed because treating somebody's symptoms with alcohol is all but basically proven to be non-therapeutic, right? Um, but but what they're what they're finding is that uh, there is something. I mean, and here's the problem, man. A lot of this stuff is so new, right? It takes 15, 20 years for data to be collected before we really have an idea of how effective or how ineffective these types of treatments are. And so I think that saying that giving people ketamine and psilocybin in micro doses, especially with the outcomes that we're getting, is being the same as us letting somebody drink to treat their symptoms. I believe that that logic is flawed. Well, so... The reason why I'm going with that direction is, as I quoted that systematic review, is when it comes to six to eight weeks point, is that there is no ounce of evidence that this approach works. And why people drink alcohol in the first place is that in the short term, it works really, pardon my language, but pretty damn well. It works really damn well to deal with whatever uncomfortable they're experiencing. So like heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine, it's all the same. Yeah. So in the short term, it addresses the symptoms. In the long term, it doesn't work. So that's where I'm going with this and how I, I kind of make a parallel. But obviously, I again, I'm not trying to go against y'all, but I do support that it should be an option. And the only reason I'm against it is because I know the field is they got to promote the schnitzel out of this. But the more it get promoted, suddenly it becomes the first line, and that's what I'm terrified of. That shouldn't be the first line approach to, uh, to dealing with uncomfortable feelings. Addictions. No, I I agree with that a hundred percent. I do not think that they should start introducing these extremely powerful psychoactive substances as a first line of defense, right? But really, if you look at some of the research, especially I, I haven't done a ton of research on the psilocybin or the MDMA microdosing, but I have done some on the ketamine, right? And and the the key word that we're using here is is uh, microdosing, right? We're we're giving people very 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 small amounts of this drug, um, just enough to alter their consciousness um, in hopes that some cognitive change takes place, right? Um, but they're only really giving this stuff to people that have treatment resistant mental health disorders. 
Mm-hmm. So where other mental health interventions and treatments have failed is where these people start taking things like ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, right? Uh, ketamine, for instance, is a, uh, a treatment for treatment-resistant depression. Right. Right? And so if somebody comes in my office and says, I'm depressed and I have anxiety, I'm not going to say, well, you should go to this doctor and start taking ketamine. That, that's <laughs> not that's – not, I don't think that's appropriate, right? But but I do think that for somebody that's been in and out of mental health treatment centers, maybe they've been in and out of the psych ward, they've been on six or eight different me- medications, and their depression is still very persistent, right? Um, then this is a good viable option, and I don't think that it should be taken away from people that need it, people right. like that. Yeah, I do agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the research methods in some of these studies because they use terms like um, client resistant, treatment resistant clients, patients. And here's one of the criteria. So the one common criterion is the failure to respond to a certain number of antidepressant medications from different classes. And that's almost the most common one. So it's basically at least two different types of antidepressants. They don't track CBT, they don't track ACTS, they don't track motivation interviewing, they don't track any of that stuff. So I feel like that's a little bit tricky in the research methods, methodologies, and they use term uh, uh, treatment resistance. Meanwhile, they only try a specific amount. My question to you, AJ, is do you feel like, because at the end of the day, I feel like this is what we're talking about, right? Do you feel like that you're going to get results from 100% of your clients using ACT and mindfulness? Oh, absolutely not. And uh, uh, the, the reason why I so believe in ACT is how flexible it is, because it's a combination of a lot of approaches. Mindfulness is only, what, two part of the model. There are six different parts. It combines CBT, it combines motivational interview, and it combines so many approaches. Uh, that's the only reason. And even then, I always have a referral system for people. Let's say ACT doesn't work. I refer them to CBT, refer them to narrative therapy. But the studies that they use the term treatment resistant, the criterion is literally just two different types of class. I feel like most people go into a psychiatrist, or at least from my clients, a lot of them try a bunch of different types of drugs that they experimented. So almost all of them, a lot of them meet this criteria. And then they just put a name treatment resistant. Well, I'm not, saying, I'm, not, I'm not saying that the criteria in, but maybe needs a little bit of adjusting because it may, right? Um, I think it probably, in fact, I think it does need some adjusting because um, antidepressants and treating depression is a lot of a trial and error anyway, right? Um, because everybody's going to react to them differently. And so when you have a, a, well, for instance, I'll use my own experience. I... I take an antidepressant every day I have for probably eight to 10 years, right? Um, I, I meet the criteria for major depressive disorder I have for probably 10 years. And so in that time, I have tried at least six different antidepressants um, until I finally found one that works for me long term, right? I've been on the same one now for like five years. Um, but before that I was, and 
there was nothing the doctor could do. The doctor was like, well, if you don't like this one or it doesn't work for you, then we'll switch it up, switch it up. Right. And so at the end of the day, they really don't know how it's going to affect you until you take it for four to six weeks. And you and guys so, gave me crap for calling that snake oil. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, I didn't so, give you crap for saying that. I'm just concerned for your safety. Oh, my safety is now Jonathan's arm in my neck. Um, <laughs> oh, for those that listen to our podcast, we do we do in Zoom as well, and Jonathan is just swinging his arms all over the place. Um, <laughs> I don't do well. I don't do well. I'm sorry. Local octopus man slaps friends. <laughs> Technologically challenged between you two. Um, I feel like an idiot. So, <laughs> but no, I I, I agree. I, I agree. Yeah, it is definitely. You're you're very right. It, a lot of it is they don't exactly know how it's going to act when they make it, and that was a point we were making not too long ago. Um, and that's also kind of and the same same kind of function there. Uh, the psychedelics, you know, it's every time we try to give someone a substance with the idea that it's going to change something, whether it's going to change their state of mind, it's going to change how hormones are being. Uh, you know, used by the body. There's so much that goes into it that we're just kind of like, hey, literally what you said, right? Hey, if this one doesn't work, try this other similar one until we find the one that works for you. And it's like, I don't know, I have a gripe with that personally. Like, I understand that it works to an extent. And like you said, you had to try like six of them, right? Find the one that works for you. But man, if that is not shady, and that's kind of my one hangout when it comes to giving clients any kind of substance, especially not as a first line defense. Because um, you have, right, treatment resistant people. Dude, I'm sorry, but is it really treatment resistant or is it the medication is kind of wonky? Snake I think oil. it's just because there's so much that, <laughs> that there's so many factors. Um, these medications affect people differently. You can put, uh, I mean, they have put a, tr you know, so many different studies and, and people together where they put 15, 30, 50 people in a room um, and they give them all the same drug who all have the same mental health, you know, meet the same mental health criteria. They give them all the same drug over the course of four to six weeks and they get extremely um, different results, right? Like it, it's not across the board, this drug is working. They don't have a drug that does that. The drug that I take right now is Wellbutrin. Um, mm. And Wellbutrin well is a, one. yeah. So Wellbutrin is a norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake inhibitor. So it works differently. Um, I think the thing that makes Wellbutrin, in my opinion, better is that it works on dopamine, which has a lot to do with the motivation and, and things like that. And so, uh, when you have increased levels of dopamine in your brain, the depression symptoms do dissipate. And I think a lot for me personally, a lot of that has to do with my opioid abuse in the past, right? Like I have a, I think I have a dopamine deficiency because I, I just used and abused my body and my mind for a long time. So, but that doesn't mean it works for the, for everybody the same way. Cause it doesn't. Since we're talking about treatment, one of the article by psychology today, what release three days ago, 24th um it was an interesting one how it brought up a um issue that battle against addiction and the role of individualized treatment plans in addiction counseling 
and it basically focused on whether uh, is substance abuse like alcohol or drugs or behavioral addictions like gambling or compulsive eating addiction doesn't really discriminate. And traditional addiction treatment programs often follow a one-size-fits-all approach, which unfortunately doesn't always work because addiction is a deeply personalized experience. So it introduces this oh, individualized treatment plans. Um, and I know, Jonathan, you have been through some of these programs. Uh, can you share with us what they refer to this one-size-fits-all approach? And I, and I get kind of conflicted on this, man, because I, I do believe in the medical model of addiction treatment, right? Uh, Medication-assisted therapy, the brain disease concept. My therapeutic approach is kind of in and and modality is kind of in line with the brain disease of you know that model of addiction, but I, I do feel like that there is um, I mean I've been to multiple treatment programs and a lot of these treatment programs are these evidence based cognitive behavioral therapy or um, dialectical behavioral therapy or, or, or whatever it may be, right? They, they do make some adjustments and shifts depending on which program you go to. But the problem with it is, is that at the end of the day, that's really not how treatment in general, much less addiction treatment should, should be put together. I believe that you should be treating some, that you should be treating the individual. Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. The, the person sitting in front of me, I may have two clients who are both heroin addicts, but if I give them, if I, if I give them the exact same treatment plan, which a lot of these cookie cutter places do, um, I'm very liable to get, to get, uh, different results and, and they may vary greatly person to person, right? Because this person may be using drugs for this reason or this reason, or they have a lifetime of trauma. This person may be using drugs just because it's what everybody in their family did. I mean, it, there's so many different factors. There's genetic variables. There's cognitive um, functioning and limitation issues. Like everybody's different, right? And so instead of saying, okay, you're here for addiction treatment, let me give you the same exact treatment plan that I give everybody else. I need to be assessing that individual. And that's where a good assessment comes in doing a, a chemical dependence biopsychosocial and, and figuring out the factors that made the individual that's sitting in front of you use drugs. That's how, that's, it, in my opinion, that's how treatment should be structured. And in a lot of these places, it's not. It's uh, here, read the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's, let's go to NA or AA meetings and you'll see your counselor once a week. That's the cookie cutter prescription for addiction treatment. And for some people it works, but I mean, for the most part, the statistics have been the same, um, which are that for, for decades, right? Which are that nine out of 10 people um, that enter into addiction treatment relapse at least one time. Because while I do agree that a one size fits all is like, um, I, I don't know who would even try that. Like if you're not if you're not actively listening to a person's problem and you're just trying to fit them into the one trick you know and you're just that one trick pony, you're not I, I don't even think I would call that therapy, to be honest with you. But wouldn't you be would you be surprised to know that a lot of these like state funded and low income oh, treatment programs here's here's that, what you said that are though, right? like that. You said state funded. 
So that goes back to what I was talking about with insurance, right? Insurance wants some kind of routine standardized care. Well, guess what? The state is going to run very similarly if we want some standardized care. Standardized care is going to be that one that one size fits all or one size fits most, one by one size fits no one. I don't know. To be honest with you, but uh, that's what that's going to look like. Yeah, but that but that with the pop that population, the people that are entering those programs are all part of the lower income, lower socioeconomic status um type groups they're the ones that enter into those kind of treatment programs to begin with right like we're talking about we've been talking about uh, the last couple of weeks about mental health treatment being more accessible to all people right? right um the people that need this addiction treatment the most are the ones getting this one size fit all treatment and that just doesn't work it doesn't well i also brought that up too right when it becomes more accessible that means that we have to lower the cost, and that's kind of where we are. I said the cost was going to get lowered, the quality was going to get lowered, and here we are. One size fits most, uh, a kind of approach is low quality. You're not you're not actively trying to figure out the person. You're trying to do the one one shoe kind of trick. You're not actually sitting there actively listening you're not doing a personalized treatment you're not doing any of that it's just cheap standardized care no listen hear me out no whoa 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 let's let's first define what goes under one size fit all because they still hear your stories they still hear this part of you so the one size fit all so detoxification followed by abstinence 12-step program uh, general group therapy that we we all do uh, prescription medication, basic behavioral counseling, and inpatient rehab. So there's that personalized aspect. But go ahead, Chris. When I say one size fits all, I really do refer mostly to NA and AA meetings where you follow the steps. And when I say that they're not listening to you, I mean that when you follow the steps, you're going step one, step two, step three, whatever. And that might not be what's best for you. So when I say an individualized treatment plan, what I mean is like somebody really might need to work on boundaries and someone may have strong boundaries. If someone has strong boundaries, I'm not going to work on them with their boundaries. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense. That's a waste of everyone's time and people's money. And so going off of what someone needs, not trying to fit them into steps, not trying to fit them into, hey, you know, fit, fit in my puzzle pieces here, right? We're going to do this my way. We're going to do it these ways. It's when I say individualize and I say listening, I literally mean get to know the person, get to know what their actual problems are. Because, I mean, in addiction, how many, how many people actually wake up and say, man, I am just going to try cocaine for the first time today because that seems like something I'm super interested in. Oh, Jonathan raises his hand. <laughs> but those listening, Jonathan just casually, uh, me. <laughs> but they have something that they're trying to get rid of, something that they don't want to feel, something they don't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. Those are the things we want to touch. I'm not going to say, okay, well, 
uh, you know, session one, everyone is going to tell me their drug story. Session two, we're going to work on boundaries. Session three, we're all going to work on mindful. No, because again, I'm not going to work on something that someone's already good at. I'm going to go and find out what their individual problem is and not put them in steps. That's my hang up there. Put that well, word out of your mouth, Chris. Well, and here's <laughs> here's the thing, right? Is like this is where proper assessment comes into play, right? Is that when you are properly assessing a client's strengths versus their areas that need improvement, um, and the biopsychosocial factors that have contributed to them being in that room with you, then, oh, then and only then can you really prescribe a treatment plan that is going to be maximally beneficial. It doesn't mean that if you apply all these cookie cutter approaches to somebody that they won't get something from it, but are they going to be able to stay sober? Well, in order to maximize that potential, because that that probability is low to begin with, um, but in order to maximize that potential, um, we need to be individualizing treatment. Um, I think the reason that it doesn't take place for more than, uh, I, I think the main, excuse me, I think the main reason that we run into this problem is it's a it's a money issue. Right. Mm. In order to individualize treatment, we have to spend a lot more money than we do about just running people through like cattle. Well, you say cattle. I was going to say the uh, the therapist mill. Yeah. But and you're right. I 100 percent agree. It's, it always comes down to money. How much funding can we get for this? How How much can we cover? Because you got to pay the professionals, you got to do all, you got to pay for all this paperwork, and so on and so forth. And so it literally comes down to money. Because I guarantee, if you opened up a shop, and I say shop, but I mean like a small like nonprofit, and you say, "Hey, man, free counseling, right? Just straight free." You're gonna have people lined up across the city waiting to get in. So it's not like people don't want it. It's just it's it's cost prohibitive significantly, right? And that's and finding that balance between you know getting it where it is affordable and getting it where people are still getting paid. You're fighting opposites. That's kind of where the struggle is, at least in my opinion. I think that's where the major mental health crisis is right now. Is just money. So I, I feel like it's so tricky because, you know, we mentioned earlier, one of the criteria to determine an effective approach modality to counseling is cost. So now we tune, you know, we have two arguments as one is, oh, it's cost effective, this one size fit all. But then there is this lack of individualized personalized for effectiveness. So is one size fit all a viable option for people? Is it an effective approach? Again, cost comes is a huge factor when it's determining the efficacy of an approach. Just remember that. I mean, I already gave my two cents on it. I kind of want to hear yours, AJ. Go in detail on yours. Well, I want to hear from Jonathan first because it feels weird for me to ask question and then answer it. 
here the the cost effectiveness i mean and i mean i just said this you know basically a while ago but the cost effectiveness is the main reason that this is an issue to begin with i believe that um if we don't trying to sit down in front of people um and individualize their treatment takes time and we we've talked about how even insurance companies for people that are using their private insurance and only insurance companies will only pay for eight ten sessions right and so I can take those eight to 10 sessions and I can make them, I can go through a cookie cutter treatment approach and hope for the best, or I can take three, four five weeks to really build rapport and get an accurate assessment of that individual and then have almost literally half the time that I would have had doing the cookie cutter approach to work with this person. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's still a, it's still an access issue, right? An access to mental health care. It's an access issue, and it's a cost effectiveness issue. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think also mostly the access is a uh, cost effectiveness, because when we were talking about insurance, right, uh, it takes a while for us to get paneled, and then they don't pay as much as cash pay, and we have people who I brought this up last time. It was we don't have a lot of people entering the field. Because, you know, grad school and other programs uh, only accept a certain amount of people. And then we have people that burn out pretty relatively quickly compared to other fields. So while we don't have a lot of counselors, I still think it is um, a largely money issue. Because, if, dude, if insurance paid cash pay, like one-to-one, everyone would sign up. Everyone would sign up. There's nothing to lose and everything to gain. And... But, I mean, you're literally, you're having to get paneled. You're doing a lot of work, a lot of time for an increase in clients with a decrease in pay. So it's, and some, and then don't get me started on the extra paperwork. But, <laughs> so it's, right now, it's still, we're starting, trying to find that balance where we can make this accessible. It literally comes down to money. It's money, it's and availability, it's kind of an issue, but it's still money. Well, yeah. I mean, so talking about the treatment programs, I've been in multiple treatment programs. I'd say the worst one by far was when I went to prison and I had to do treatment inside the prison. Um, there were 60 plus guys in my dorm. And how it worked was that they would have a counselor Monday through Friday. The weekends, they weren't there. But Monday through Friday, they would have a counselor come in the dorm. And from 8 to noon and then 1 to 3, we just had hourly classes, right, where they would just basically say, okay, we're going to talk about we're this hour, we're going to talk about mindfulness. This hour, we're going to talk about CBT. This hour, we're going to talk about boundaries or whatever. Um so you run into the problem. The first problem is is that I'd say about eighty-five to ninety percent of those people don't could care less, right? Or couldn't care less, excuse me, um, about being there to begin with. They're there because they were forced to be there. Um, but secondly, right, it's like let's just run as many as we can through the mill, right? We're gonna put sixty plus people in a room, we're gonna throw a bunch of information at them and hope that it sticks. 
that's a really, really, really inefficient treatment approach. Mm. But it's it's a very, very common treatment approach. Okay, so so it was designed as a cost effective approach, but it sounds like from anecdotal uh, from Jonathan is it's not very effective. It's not even in the long term. It's not even cost effective. It's not effective because it's not cost. Well, it's not cost effective because it's not effective to begin with. Mm. Yeah, if you're getting like very little to no results, it doesn't matter how much you cut the price off. You're still not getting any benefit or very little benefit. Yeah, I would um, only see I would only see my counselor. Um, I was supposed to see him every week. I only saw him once a month, and it was just. He would come drag me out once a month, take me to this little cubicle that he had in his office um, in another building there at the prison. And he would write up like every month they give you what they called a contract. And it was just a bunch of busy work to get mm. you to reflect on your thoughts and why you use drugs and just a bunch of worksheets, really. And he would say, okay, you have to do all these in the next three and a half, four weeks. And when I come get you next month, you need to have all this to me. You can turn it in and then I'll give you more. And they gave you one per month, every month that you were there. Right. And the the problem that I run into here is that they were also supposed to be doing um, individualized counseling with you, but because they were so overworked and they had caseloads of 90 to 100 people. Um, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not getting any kind of individualized care. You're getting psychoeducational classes thrown at you. Um, and then when you get out and you don't do well, they're like, well, we put you in treatment. It's, it's, it's check marking a box so the state can save their own ass. We mm -hmm. can say that we put this person in treatment. So if they fail, it's on them. Yeah. So you see, my, my arguments at first, well, it's, I'm very, uh, I'm changing my mind here, but my argument at first was, oh, yeah, one size fits all, I feel like it's extremely important, especially in today's world. Uh, I think about two years ago, there was a study that said um, how CBT is losing effectiveness. And one, one of the costs is the lack of proper training. Because I don't know if y'all have taken CBT. It's very generic. It doesn't d dive into the most important part of CBT is the philosophy behind it. It doesn't put enough. Even most books that I read doesn't put enough in the the model, the philosophy behind the CBT. Uh, so, tr so this is where one size fits all kind of personally I support it at first is as able to for proper training of staff because it's one size fit all. Oh, you do this, you do this, you do this. And you can deep dive and many people are talking about it. You're able to understand, you communicate with people better because more people are practicing it. But hearing your story, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, because it eliminate that uh, client therapist relationship. One reliable indicator, it's not a it's not a reason for someone improving counseling, but it's a reliable indicator of the outcome of outcome in counseling. It's like that client therapist relationship. And when you lack that personalized aspect, and again, I'm not saying that client therapist relationship is what cure that would just be dependency there. Uh, but it's a, a reliable indicator because that there's this trust. 
and having people show up once a month and just fill out this worksheet and call it a day. I mean, there's no client therapist relationship there, or at least I'm assuming hearing from from your words, Jonathan. No, there's none. I couldn't even tell you the guy's name. Not to mention <laughs> he was weird AF, bro. Like he he was an LCDC intern, right? He was an LCDCI. So he was still working on his 4,000 hours, which, by the way, that's usually who the state hires, right? Um, And so he was working on his 4,000 hours. He wasn't even fully licensed. Yet he told me the first time I met him that he had a background in addiction and that he had spent like 20 years in prison for murder. Um, He he told me this, right? And and I'm like, at the time I was ignorant. But now knowing what I know, it's like, that's a lie because there's no way that they would have ever even given you an LCDCI license had you ever been convicted of murder. Right. Mm. And so it's like, now I look back and it's like, now anything he did say to me, his credibility is gone. Mm. Right. So he was weird to boot. He was not really present and, and whatever else, but he was also weird. So. Okay. But you can't just take him and say, everyone who works in the prison is going to be just weird. Okay. We <laughs> that's can't not say what that. I said. That's not what I said. Chris, I man, said, stop putting words in his mouth, dude. I said, he was weird. No, I know. I I know. Some of the other counselors may have been great. Mine had no credibility um, because I thought it was even weird at the time that he would tell me that, like, how does that have to do with anything that we're talking about? <laughs> right. So I don't know. So you think he says that? With the intention of like trying to bond with you, <laughs> trying to, uh, try to I don't know, build bro. That client I'm here, therapist I'm, That's I, interesting. I'm here because I'm a drug addict, bro. I'm not a murderer, so <laughs> I I don't know what is it, what he was trying to accomplish. That's interesting. Yeah. That's pretty funny. Uh, but I will say this though, in terms of cost effectiveness, I do like group therapy when it's done right, especially if you have a consistent membership. So those groups that is the same people, there's no people coming in, people coming out, who shows up, who doesn't, but the ones that are consistent, because you still have that level of rapport. You still have that personal connection because it's like the same five people every week. And that drastically cuts down that cost too. It makes it a lot affordable. And that's something I really wish that was more common because we were talking about accessibility and one size fits all. With small groups that where you keep the same people every week, you can still take that individualized approach because you're going to change with the dynamic of the group. Like you have certain goals that obviously need to be met, but you're going to learn everybody. You're going to try to lead them in a way where it's almost like one size fits most, but you do adjust it to the group. So you get a little bit of both and you still get the cost effectiveness. My issue is how often do you see group therapy offered like that? Well, close group is pretty, pretty popular, but obviously open groups is a lot more. It and is. then open, the problem like, is people would hop on one group. Oh, I don't like it. And then they Yeah, bounce. like open group. Don't get me wrong. I like open group too. But I feel like open group, you have people that are drastically different. So people who've been doing it a while, and then you got people who are very new. Um, and that can be good or bad. Because good, oh, you know, they can see how that how person changes through this. It gives you uh, inspiration, hope, 
or installation of hope rather. Uh, bad though is because that can lead to some arguments. You have people with incredibly changed mindsets versus someone who's fresh. And they're like, oh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Trust me, I've been here. And it's like, dude, you're talking down to them. You're invalidating. You got to be careful about that. And so I just prefer closed groups because even in closed groups, right? Well, actually, technically both groups, you can get them about certain topics. So like you can get groups for people who are addicts. That's what AA does. You can get people who grief counseling groups, right? Like all these people who just lost a kid people who just lost a close family member. And so you can still get these very, like, what they need to work on. And you can have all these people around them as support and still get good, accessible care. And personally, I would love to see that a lot because most counselors do only individual. They don't really do group. And I think group is, in the future, if not current, a great way to kind of bridge this gap <clears throat> between accessibility and, you know, pay efficiency. That's yeah. just my take. So, so you suggesting, well, tie in with something you said is, uh, so promote closed groups. I would love to see closed groups, but groups in general, I do believe would definitely help. Yeah, because that's that's more than likely kind of the reason they were doing it. Like Jonathan was saying in the prison, you got a lot of people that need care and that can be very cost effective. But you also need it full of people who want to be there. You can't just force someone to go. Right. So I don't know about y'all, but I hate leading groups. I, I personally love really groups. enjoy groups. Yeah. Y'all a bunch of yeah. weirdos. Yeah, no, I, I love doing <laughs> groups, man. I do them. Three of them every Monday in person. I've got anywhere between six and 20 people. And when it's over 15, like we have to split so that we still have that individualized personal approach because I don't want to talk at a room of 20 people with 45 minutes. You know, it's like two minutes a person. What can you actually talk about? Right. So I, I love groups. Well, you, you got to think too. I think some of this is, especially when we're talking about like estate care and this cookie cutter approach. A lot of this too is just the criminal justice system is completely overburdened um, and understaffed. And I mean, and we've talked about all that before, right? About how there's there's a shortage of mental health professionals, um, and there's also um, there's a lot of people they're trying to funnel through the same system, right? So the system is completely overburdened and they don't know exactly. I think the state knows that their approach to mental health treatment and these, you know, programs in prisons and things like that. I think that they know that the overall effectiveness is pretty low, but they don't, they really don't, they really don't know what to do about it because they don't yeah. have any other options. Yeah. Well, but well, they do have options, more funding. <laughs> okay, well, but they but they don't get it. Though. But they don't do it. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. well, in Texas, I mean, we prefer tax cut over uh, funding mental health programs. I mean, this year, economy is down. There's insane amount of uh, tax cut. I mean, in Montgomery County. So to be fair, uh, speaking of Montgomery County, they have a thing in there where it sources the Texas Public Policy 
uh, foundation. And this was back in like 2011, 2014-ish. And they had a whole control group and then people who did any amount of drug court and then people who completed drug court. The re-arrest rate for the control group was 58.5%. For those who completed drug court was 28.5%. Literally dropped by 30%. And then those of them who did any drug court, it was 40.5. Already dropped 18% just by doing some drug court. And if you want to talk about the re-incarceration uh, rate, control group was 266 Completed drug court dropped to 3.4%. So the cost of the individual was like the average inmate cost about $18,500 at that point. And then when you have people who did drug court, the cost dropped down to about anywhere between two and a half to $4,000. Oh, jeez. So they were saving money, lowering the rearrest, lowering reincarceration. Like it was, it's great. I mean, this is why we have it. So yeah, overburdened system, sure. But by lowering the burden, by lowering the amount of people coming back into the system, it drastically helps. We just need it more funded on a larger scale to further lower the burden. Yeah. So in perspective, quick math here is what, 85% of reduction in spending for each person? Give or take. That's insane. 85%? Wow. Well, and you, but you think, too, that's the reason that these diversion courts are so much of a better option for people, especially people who um, have increased rates of you know, recidivism where they where they are in and out, in and out, in and out. And so there's um, – these these drug courts and DWI courts are a, a a godsend. Whenever you look at the the options that are available in within the incarceration system, right? Just in Texas, um, there are multiple programs that that people have inmates have to complete in prison. A lot of times, people that get prison sentences that are for drug related offenses, even if it's not drug related, but they found that drugs were a factor. Right. They make people do these programs in order to parole out and go home. And yeah. you've got things like the intermediate sanction facility. So ISF, that's a three to six month program. You've got safe P, which is substance abuse felony punishment. That's a six to nine month program. Um, you've got a DWI program, the standalone DWI program. That's nine months. Right. Um, and then you've got juvenile uh substance abuse programs that are anywhere between six months and 12 months. These are all within the, the prison system here in just this state, right? And the numbers that we're seeing in um, retention are, are still like on, on average, a lot lower, uh, or excuse me. Yeah. A lot lower than what we see with people who are placed in these diversion courts. Yeah. Uh, something just popped in my mind is that I feel like the I, I don't want to be a party pooper. I have a strong support for DBI and drug court. I mean, we work for DBI and drug court. Um, but I feel like the number statistic is a little bit it's not representative because a huge factor of people entering this program is there is this 
not everyone can get into this program. It's a very picky program. I mean, people uh, have to shadow uh, for a long time to even prove to court that they can do the program. So this program, they and then they filter, they interview people. So the number is kind of not as representative because you know they you, they filter out specific amount of people and they say, oh, they're more likely to success. So it skew the result. Um, and then the, compared to other one is oh a broad range of populations. Obviously, that number is going to be a lot bigger. So that's my point. You already know me. I'm a party pooper. So well, as true as what you said is about the whole they. They are very picky, mm-hmm. right? There's not. It's kind of like what Jonathan was saying earlier. They we're not going to just throw like all these psychoeducation and mindfulness at your face if you don't care enough to be there. Because if you're still in the part of your life, uh, part of your addiction, part of your whatever, that you're not ready to change, then we'll go ahead and give the seat to someone who is. And when you are at least at pre-contemplation, where you are, do I want to change? We can work with that. Mm -hmm. But if you're at the point where, man, I can't wait to get out of here. The second I hit probation, I'm going to do this all over again. Well, see a lot of those. (laughs) Right. But you... Therapy cannot be forced on people. You have to at least somewhat want to change or at least consider changing. Otherwise, at that point, you're just throwing money into a garbage disposal. Yeah. Mm. And I'm not calling people garbage disposals. I'm just saying don't don't waste your money if you're not at least considering change. If you think that everyone around you is wrong and you want someone to validate you, that is not what therapy is. Because at that point, there's a common denominator that you might want to consider. Mm-hmm. Hey, people always say, make fun of counseling, be like, oh, how does it make you feel? Kind of thing. I'm like, oh, no, that's not what counseling is about. But sure. Oh, why not, AJ? <laughs> how does that make you feel when people say that? Is Are you okay? I swear to Buddha, I will fight you, Chris. Anyway. Buddha said, be peaceful and mindful, sir. <laughs> that was the joke. That's not oh. very accepting of your uncomfortable emotions, AJ. Oh, yeah. y'all can't take a joke, huh? Yeah. Anyway, let's shift let's gears a bit to something uh, I find extremely interesting. This news: uh, an off-duty Alaska airline pilot, Joseph Emerson, tried to shut off the engines during a flight uh, this past Sunday, according to court documents. Uh, Emerson told investigator that he been sleep deprived and dehydrated after consuming psychedelic mushrooms for forty-eight hours prior to the incident. He also disclosed that he had been struggling with depression for about six years and had recently lost a friend. On the day of the incident, Emerson was riding a cockpit jump uh, jump seat, which is standard practice for off-duty pilots. He told the police that he felt the pilots weren't paying attention and in a confused state. Pulled both emergency shutoff handles, thinking he was dreaming and wanting to wake up. So the authorities charge Emerson in federal courts with one count of interfering with flight crew members and attendants. Additionally, he faces 83 counts of attempted murder in, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Multnomah County Circuit Court in Portland, Oregon. His uh, His lawyer entered not guilty pleas on his behalf, emphasizing that Emerson is a caring father. 
and skilled aviator, insisting he was not under the influence at the time. Hmm. Uh, so while Emerson claimed to have used uh, psilocybin mushrooms, experts are skeptical that he was still under their influence during the flight. The event unfolds amid uh, increasing acceptance of psychedelics for medical treatment, including research into their use for mental disorders. So this incident not only brings into sharp focus the need for rigorous mental health assessments for pilots, but also intersects with the ongoing conversation about the role of psychedelics in mental health treatment. So what are your thoughts? I think pilots are under a lot of stress. Well, didn't they also say that he like lost somebody recently, so the guy was trying to cope? Yeah, he's grieving. That's a really high-stress job to begin with. Um, are we using emotions as an excuse, guys? No. What's going on here? No, it's no. Uh, Hold on. identifying his reasoning okay. for what he did what he did. Mm-hmm. You know what they say about making assumptions, AJ? I'm, that's why I'm asking. It makes an, it makes an ass out of you and me. I'm asking, are y'all using emotions and excuse, guys? I'm so, asking. I'm going to preface everything I'm about to say with the fact that I do not believe this was a good decision. Okay. okay. <laughs> nothing. Now I'm a little bit worried. Nothing about this is a good decision. However. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Right? uh-oh. There it is. How, there it how, is. Yeah. How, There's however, the button. Everybody take a chill pill. <laughs> Let me finish. Advocating so, for drugs now. Oh, wow. I, I am. Yeah, no, I think psilocybin is, is great. I think that all pilots should take it, and we should just <laughs> see what happens. So here's the problem, right, is that this is a high-stress job. It, high stress does increase the level of uncomfortable emotions. Let's go into AJ's thing for a minute, Right. Uncomfortable emotions are hard to cope with if you don't have the knowledge and the and the tools necessary in order to cope with it in a healthy manner. And so, although he made a very poor decision in taking hallucinogenic drugs before he gets on an airplane, right, um, and any role, that is a poor decision on his part. However, you have to look at the idea that this is one pilot who made a bad choice, probably because he's really stressed out. He's also grieving and he's under the influence of, of drugs. Right. Um, but there are a lot of pilots that really struggle with, I mean, I've, I've read about pilots in the past that struggle with alcoholism, drug addiction, things like that. I don't want to say that I, I don't want to go so far as to say that there's an increased rate of addicts and alcoholics among amongst the pilot population. But I think about like every time you go to work, you've got a hundred plus people's lives in your hands, right? Plus they work long hours and they're gone from their families a lot. If you think about that Malaysian Airlines flight that disappeared and they never found, right? They didn't know exactly what happened to it. They initially thought that there was a, uh, it might have been like some kind of terrorist attack or it was, um, you know, uh, someone even said alien abduction and all this other crap or different dimensional stuff. But what the most likely scenario, even though they never found this Malaysian Airlines flight and it, all these hundred plus people are considered dead, the most likely scenario is that the pilot was going through a divorce and he had a bunch of other stuff going on in his life. 
and he got on the plane and just decided he was going to end it. And he took everybody that was on the plane with him. Right. So he turned his locator beaker uh, beacon off. Mm. Right. And they're pretty sure that he landed in, he crash landed in the Indian ocean Yeah. and the place where they're pretty sure he crash landed, even though they had never found it is one of the most desolate and segmented places, um, on the planet. Right. There's not there's not a civilization within fifteen hundred or two thousand miles in any direction of where they feel like this plane went down. So they look at it as like it's purposeful. Right. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that these pilots, they they're people just like anybody else. And they have things that go on in their lives that stress them out and, and that make their emotions hard to deal with. And then they're placed in a position where. They have a huge responsibility, and it's not so foreign to me that people can snap. Not saying it's a good thing, right? But people can snap. Yeah, I mean that's what uh, uncomfortable people can do. Uh, uncomfortable people, uncomfortable feelings can do to a person. And we go to great extent to get rid of uncomfortable feelings. I mean, we already we already know that with counselors, we have her stories. I was just gonna say, not advocating, not saying he did, not saying that you know our pilot on shrooms, not the pilot that possibly crashed in the middle of nowhere, uh, but the pilot on shrooms. I'm not saying that understanding him is the same as giving him an excuse or explaining away what he did, right? Right. Um. It, that goes into part of just understanding people, trying to find a reason for what they did, going from there. That's almost to the point you can't really turn it off. But that's dangerous, not only to other people, but to themselves. Because it could have very well ended in travesty. Could have been, oh, I, I'm going to wake up, um, engines are out, and we're going to have a crash liner and like 200 deaths. That's insane, uh, insanely terrible for everyone on board. And so, well, yes, I do. I do think there is uh, some kind of like action that needs to be taken. Going to jail is not going to fix that. And that goes back to another point of criminalizing people for addiction mental disorders, whatever, is definitely not the approach. Um, Whoa, wait, sorry to interrupt, but is, isn't like 90% of people in that go to prison suffer some sort of uh, personality disorder? It doesn't mean that it's right. <laughs> it just means that the U.S. is really bad about doing that. Okay. All right, I'm, ju uh, I'm, just, well, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm going to uh, go ahead and uh, throw this out here, and if this bites me in the butt, it will. But... I am 100% going to advocate that most people in prison need rehabilitation, not prison sentencing. Um, Even for murders? Say, well, I said most, not all. There are some things that are you do need prison time. but And I do mean like prison, prison time. Like you do not... Like, like there are danger, some people... Danger to society. Yeah, some like... Counseling can't fix everything. Um, yeah, it can. We're talking about. 
but there are significantly <laughs> more people than not. So the majority of uh, people in prison, I do feel that if they were rehabilitated, they were seen through proper counseling. They were given tools, maybe even like skills training, right? So that when they come out, they can uh, go and actually find work, not be, you know, stigmatized and screwed over because they don't have uh, skills, ways to make money to stay alive. I think if we provided these things to them, we would see a lot less recidivism, a lot less people returning. And so it's just, it's a lot to talk about. Obviously, we need to uh, kind of start tying up for the day, but it's just things to think about. For sure. Yeah, we have some uh, productive discussion today. Um, I was hoping for it to get even more heated. I, I prepare for it. I was like, I know Chris and Jonathan's gonna AJ say this. Chose violence I'm gonna, this morning. I'm gonna go up because I'm relatively neutral in almost all topic that we talked about. But you know what? I'm gonna go wild and uh, say some stuff and see where it goes. But I was Play hoping for it to be a lot more, a lot more heated. But it it wasn't. Well, I'm I'm disappointed. For the sake of maintaining my professionalism, um, I think you're wrong. <laughs> well to be fair we did very professional there sir <laughs> i mean three things the first one is we actually did disagree on some stuff earlier well uh, i wouldn't two, say necessarily disagree we were no, I day, we were, we were right. i disagreed vehemently with you in some areas <laughs> i did we, we, we so, kind of concluded with the same point but i think we're just going at a, uh i guess i was communicating not correctly because i started with a very bold statement, I disagree. Only the aspect of how it's being promoted. There we go. And then the research behind it. So my delivery sucks. Two, look at what y'all just did, right? What kind of counselor can't communicate like that? So understanding the other person's point of view, like if we get into a shouting match, uh, someone failed. Maybe everyone involved. Sure, I are agree. You, are you questioning it's my been- competency as a counselor? No, I'm yes. questioning your ability to uh, be a toxic, raging asshole. Oh, okay. I would try harder next time. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> and then uh, third and finally, I uh, hope everybody has a good uh, weekend, and we can see y'all next time. Sounds good.